Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome back to the IAB UK podcast. From the IAB, I'm James Chandler and this week's episode is a special extension of our 2021 leadership series. Many of you, I'm sure, will have journeyed to Software House in St Albans to attend one of our leadership summits in the past five years. But coronavirus being what it is, meant hosting the event in person just wasn't possible this year. So Leadership Summit pivoted gracefully into Leadership Series, the two-day residential conference into a 12-month-long programme of town halls, roundtables and brilliant inspirational speakers. And that's the perfect segue into today's guest, who is John Sutherland, a former Met Police commander of 25 years. John was April's Leadership Series speaker and gave... A remarkable take on what he calls the lost art of listening, not only drawing on his career as a senior police officer, but also his experience as a hostage and crisis negotiator. Full disclosure, this episode is light on digital advertising, but what you do get is an utterly captivating take on communication and insight into John's crisis negotiation career, or as he puts it, dealing with people on the very worst day of their lives. We talk about his training to become a hostage negotiator, debate the pros and cons of having to communicate with each other for over a year via video conferencing, and talk candidly about the pressures of modern policing, and in particular the Sarah Everard vigil on Clapham Common and police response to the Black Lives Matter protests. But I started by asking John about his upcoming book and first foray into fiction. The new book is called The Siege, uh, and it's my first go at writing fiction. Um, And it's the story primarily of three people, um, a hostage taker, a hostage and a hostage negotiator. Mm. Um, There's a wider cast of characters, but those are the three who lie at the heart of it. Um, and it's a story told in real time. Each chapter heading is just uh, uh, an entry on the 24-hour clock. Um, uh, and so it unfolds over the course of a, of a night. Um, and it's the story of three people and their worlds colliding. Is it based on a true story? Uh, no, it's a, it's a product of my imagination, but it, it contains all sorts of elements of truth, all sorts of echoes of my policing life and what and what led you to fiction then given that you've written two you know one a one a a a times bestseller the other with the very notable radio four mention what kind of led you after those to 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 go into fiction were there things that you know that that were in your head that you wanted that you kind of wanted to get out that exactly that I, i mean i my whole without wanting to sound like disingenuous my whole writing journey has been accidental I'm, I'm the accidental writer um, I, I guess in Jose Mourinho's terms I'm the accidental one um, <laughs> and so the first book I wrote was was a memoir it was the story of my policing life and I, I wrote it I didn't set out to write a book I, I, I set out on a kind of therapeutic journey mm. um, that turned into a book uh, the second one was slightly more deliberate um, you know, kind of stories of, of the world around us and what policing reveals about it. But all the while that I was writing nonfiction, I, I had in the back of my head somewhere 
these three characters really? and the tale that I've ended up telling. Uh, and it, it became this sort of, it just became a story that I needed to write. You said, um, you said in Blue, a memoir, which was your first book, you tell this story about uh, when you're 20 uh, and I think you're spending the weekend with a new girlfriend or something like that and you're talking to her mum in the kitchen and, and she asks you what you want to do. I'm sort of slightly paraphrasing here and you say, well, I want to join the police and she says to you, oh no, you can do better than that. I mean, do you, was there a, this sort of held opinion that, um, you know, going into the police at, at, at that time wasn't a particularly ambitious thing to do or was riddled with, uh, 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 I mean, when you look back now, how does that, how do you think about that? I, I mean, I often reflect on that moment in time. I, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't come from, from money or anything like that, but I'm, you know, I'm middle class. My dad was a vicar. My mum was a school teacher. Mm. Um, and, but, but I, I guess many of the people around me as I grew up didn't consider policing to be a reasonable or sensible or desirable thing to do with your working life. Yeah. Um, I'm a first generation police officer, so there's, there's no history of it in my family. Right. And I didn't have any friends who were police officers. Hmm. So I, I was entirely new to it. And yet I was captivated by it from the very beginning. Um, and all I know is that my then girlfriend's mum was completely wrong. Uh, <laughs> I still think that policing is the most extraordinary job in the world. I still think that it's the finest thing any of us could ever choose to do with our working life. What was it that got you so captivated? Was it was it television and movies? Was it an experience that you had? I mean, what, what was it that gave you that sort of itch that you had to scratch? Well, the, the itch was there from about the age of 16. Mm. Um, and I remember it very vividly. I was standing on Hammersmith Broadway waiting for the bus to school and a police officer walked down the other side of the road on the other pavement doing nothing in particular. Uh, in fact, knowing what I know now, I suspect he was just bored, cold, tired and hungry. There was nothing happening in Hammersmith that morning. But with, without wanting to give it the full sort of Damascus Road experience, I remember vividly standing there looking at that police officer and something inside me went click. Mm. And I mean, if you ask most police officers why they joined, they will tell you very simply it's because they wanted to help people. And the fact that that's a well-worn phrase doesn't make it any less true. Yeah, yeah. As a 16, 17-year-old, uh, I'm not sure I would have articulated it quite so nobly. I mean, I think I was looking for adventure. Um, and absolutely, I wanted to be a part of something that mattered. But as I sit here now in my early 50s, after more than 25 years as a police officer, <laughs> it, it was my chance in my own small way to try and change the world and it was a privilege when you talked to us you know just over a week ago as part of leadership series you the the theme of what you talked about was around communication but specifically it was around listening and and what you've done this sort of lost art of listening um talk to us a bit around uh, uh, talk to us a bit about that and your view of the world and in probably why we're not listening so much is just so so captivating but 
tell us a bit more about how you see it. I just think we're living in very divided times. Um, the world has become very polarized. Um, you know, just you know, taking this country, we divide ourselves into leave and remain, mm. into town and country, into left and right, male and female, north and south, have and have not. There's, mm. All of these divides are created. Um, and it seems to me that in ordinary life, then echoed and amplified on social media, the chosen means of communication for so many of us just seems to be yelling at one another with our fingers in our ears. Mm. Um, and one of the things that I feel passionately about is rediscovering this lost <laughs> art of listening. And of course, listening was uh, was so important to you in your time as a hostage and crisis negotiator. You trained, uh, and I'd, I'd love to, you talk to us a bit about um uh, that training at, at Peel House when you sort of initially started going to it. Is there anything from that? I mean, how well do you remember it for one? And, and two, was there anything profound that happened in that very first session that's kind of stuck with you, uh, that you employed when you were, you know, out actually doing this thing for real? God, I remember all of it vividly. Mm. I mean, the best training course I ever went on. But, but actually, before I even got to the training course, I had to go through the selection process. Ah, right. And the selection process began with a written application. Then you got on to a face-to-face -face interview. And if you were fortunate enough to have cleared those first two hurdles, there was a practical assessment. Mm. And it was up at the detective training school at Hendon, which is where the, the national course is run. And the exercise consisted of, of turning up and you were given a very short briefing. Um, you, you were playing yourself in a role play exercise. And for the purpose of the exercise, at the end of the corridor, there was a closed door. And you were told that that was the front door of a serving police officer who hadn't turned up for work that day uh, and whose colleagues were worried about him. Um, go and deal with it. That was all you were told. Uh, and so I just remember standing there in the corridor and thinking, well, the only way to, to deal with this is to treat it as real. Mm. And so I went and knocked on the door and there was no response. Now, you might think that hostage negotiators are selected on the basis of their ability to talk. Mm, yeah. Um, and of course, talking is important, but it's not the most important thing. Mm. Listening is the thing. Uh, and so I stood at the door and I listened and there was no sound. And so I knocked on the door again, and, and eventually I could hear just a sort of a faint, sad voice of the person on the other side playing the part of this officer. And what I discovered over the course of the exercise, um, and what I've reflected on constantly since, was that the people assessing me weren't interested in my ability to talk, or they were less interested in my ability to talk. Mm. What they really wanted to know was whether I knew how to listen. And was that something instinctive that you hadn't been primed to, you know, there hadn't been the sort of, here's the 101 on, on hostage negotiation, you know, listening's as important. So that was something instinctively that you went and did. Well, it, yes. So I, so I hadn't been given a nod or a wink before yeah, the exercise. Yeah. No, nobody had taken me to one side saying, <laughs> this is how you pass it. 
So uh, in that in that sense, yes, it was entirely instinctive. Um, and and I, I don't know whether I was a complete natural at it. Uh, I mean, I guess I did well enough to, to pass the assessment and yeah. uh, to get on and, and uh, get on to the course. But but listening is a is a skill like any other that that you get better at the more you do it the more you practice it mm. um uh and that would certainly be true in my experience the, the the training course taught me how to listen um and every deployment um renewed that learning as i've written before and absolutely it remains true you know over the course of my policing career time and time and time again i learned that listening saves lives mm. do you remember that the first sort of live job you went to after that training course where you're effectively in the field putting into practice the stuff you've learned uh, you still remember it yeah well i mean the very first deployment actually wasn't terribly interesting uh, <laughs> part, partly because it was resolved very quickly right uh, partly because um i had a very peripheral role in it mm. um you know as as the new boy I was encouraged just to to stand back and watch the experts. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I mean, I could tell you endless stories from the early days of my negotiating career. I, I remember being called out to to West London, uh, sort of somewhere out beyond Ealing, I think. And there was an Italian man um, on the roof of a three story house, and he was threatening to jump off. And it turned out that he was involved in some sort of long-running dispute with the local housing department, and he was just getting nowhere with it, mm. and he just got to the end of himself. He, he felt like he'd exhausted all of his options, and and I remember it being a freezing cold day, and I remember that the only way of getting anywhere close to him was using one of those fire brigade cherry pickers. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the hoist, mm. the, you know, the sort of thing you see people when they're repairing um, street lamps and telegraph poles and that sort of thing. Uh, and I remember it's quite a, a cramped little cradle that you're in and you need a, a firefighter to operate it. Right. Uh, and because I was dealing with a man who couldn't speak English, we needed an Italian interpreter oh. <laughs> and me. And I remember the three of us squeezing into this cradle and being raised up to roof height. And I remember it being an absolutely freezing cold day and i remember just trying to listen to this man and his story mm. um so often what people want is just to be heard and in the end we were able to persuade him to come down and i hope his days got better after that but time and time again listening was the key to it all and how do you deal with that? I mean, you, you talked about the translator there with a, a man who speaks Italian and maybe can't communicate in the same language as the barrier there. What about your experience of people who are just very, very difficult to engage with, who just simply won't engage with you, whether they're stood on top of a building or, or, or you know, going to um, have a hostage them, themselves? How do you get over that initial thing? Because listening's, of course, what you want to do, but if you're not having anything coming back that must be really difficult i mean it needs enormous patience mm. and time i mean by definition if you've been called as a negotiator um you're walking into a point of crisis whether that's a crime in action where somebody is desperate 
yeah. um, because they don't want to go to jail or whatever it might be, or whether it's a person in mental health crisis mm. um, who may have taken drugs, they may be drunk, they may just be in a state of great distress. But what you often find is that, that the normal rules of communication don't apply. Mm. It's not just like the kind of polite conversation you and I are having now. All of it happens under stress and duress mm. and strain. And so you just, you have to be calm and you have to be clear-headed. More than anything, perhaps, you have to be compassionate, though. Mm. Um, if, if we're to have any hope of resolving this peacefully, then I need to understand who you are. And I need to understand why you're here. Mm. And I need to understand how you got here. Um, and at the risk of repeating myself, the key to doing all of those things is to listen to you. Yeah. And, and not just in the way that we so often do in the world at the moment, where you know we kind of hurry past someone in the cor corridor and we say to them, you're right. And we're already 10 yards away before they've even had a chance to answer. You know, the, the world is moving far too fast. Yeah. It was Gandhi who said that there's more to life than increasing its speed. <laughs> but I don't think anyone was listening. And, uh, and part of the wider life learning for me of my negotiator experience is the need for all of us to slow down, to pause for a moment or two, mm. and to take the time to really listen to one another. It's kind of, you know, the worst listening, and I'm, I can think about myself so guilty of it is uh, as you said before you're you're really interested in what I have to say to someone so I'll, I'll make a point and then there's some silence and the other person's talking but my brain's already whirring the cogs are already going I'm already thinking about that reply and that kind of active listening that you're talking about the really understanding and of course you went on to talk to us about you know it's not just listening with the ears there's so much more to it as well you're using the I think it was the Chinese symbol for listening with well, so many different parts to it talk, talk, talk to us a bit about that yeah so listening done well is a, is a very deliberate intentional thing it, it's not just as you describe it the pauses in the conversation yeah. where i'm working out what to yeah. say next um you know so much of our communication is i just want to land my point yes i just want to land my blow i just want to say my piece and i've got no interest in what you have to say um, and the point about the Chinese, the, the English word for listen is quite limited in its scope. Mm. The Chinese word for listen or the Chinese symbol for listen is, is much broader, much wider ranging. There are four different facets to the symbol, each speaking to a different aspect of what listening is. So that there, you know, the, the, the top left quarter of the symbol absolutely refers to, to the ears and the importance of the ears in the listening process. Um, but there are other parts of the symbol that talk about the eyes, um, <clears throat> both the notion that it's important to look the person in the eye that we're speaking to. Mm. You know, whilst you're talking to me, it's important for me to look you in the eye. But also a recognition that you know, up to 90% of what we communicate with yeah. one another is nonverbal. Um, I had a very powerful experience once of, of doing a... I was actually speaking at a sort of book event. Um, uh, and one of the people in the audience was, was deaf. And so I, as I was speaking, I had alongside me um, a sign language interpreter. 
And I, I, I wish I could speak sign language. I think it's so beautiful. Mm. And, and I had a lovely conversation with the, the deaf guy afterwards. And I, it struck me that, that he doesn't listen at all with his yeah, ears. Yeah. He does all of his listening with his eyes mm. and with his heart which is another aspect of the Chinese symbol of listening, that we listen not just with our ears and our eyes, but we listen with our hearts as well. And there is this sense that, that listening is a wholehearted undertaking. Mm. It requires all of me and not just those brief periods of silence between my words. It, it, that kind of listening you describe, I mean, it sounds... And probably should be exhausting. It, it should really feel like you're doing it. Tell me about how you know you would you would go and attend a, a, a negotiation, may go on for minutes, hours, days, even. How, how did you then go home at that point and be a dad and a husband? How do you switch off from that stuff? One, because you've been intently listening, so you know somehow need to unpack that. But some of the things you would have heard and seen, you know, they're not things everyday people are perhaps seeing as well. So how do you make that distinction between this is John, you know, the, the, the constable, the police officer, and this is John when I'm at home? I mean, almost impossible, I would imagine, to just turn the switch and, and, and go home and be someone different. I mean, in the moment, you find a way to do it. Yeah. I mean, in the moment, um, your professional instincts and your training and that, you know, I talk about that precious old-fashioned thing called duty. All of those things kick in with mm. a huge dose of adrenaline and seem to give you what you need in the moment yeah. to be able to deal with it well or as well as possible. Um, in terms of how you then switch off after that and return to a more normal life, mm. I mean, for years I, I thought I was doing it fine. Um, uh, it turned out in the end, it, it made me sick. Um, not just negotiating and indeed not just policing. Yeah. Um, but after 25 years of service, I was medically retired because in the end, I think I had taken on too much. Hmm. Um, if I've, if I've learned anything over the last few years, it, it's the realization that it would be impossible to do the job of a police officer for any length of time. Yeah and to remain untouched, unaffected by the things that you see and do. Yeah. Um, just to go back a couple of steps on the, on the non-verbal stuff, most of us, if you've got an office job, will have worked at home for the last year and a bit where, in a weird way, webcams and FaceTime and Zoom and all these things have been a bit of a saviour because, you know, this pandemic happening 10, 15 years ago would have been very difficult to communicate with teams when we did sort of things by fax and all, all that sort of nonsense. But whilst it's it's a bit of a sticky plaster on communication, it's not quite, you must miss out so much of that non-verbal stuff. And I just, I wonder what it will be like when we all kind of get back together in groups and sit in rooms, whether it's just like riding a bike and it comes naturally or we're going to kind of readjust. But what do you think we've missed from, I mean, you and I are looking at each other on a, a, a on a Zoom call now, but what are we missing we can hear the words each other are saying i can kind of gauge your facial expressions but there's lots of other stuff we're missing out on i think isn't there absolutely i the thing i've probably missed more than anything else in the last 18 months is hugging mm. just that sort of tactile 
yeah. thing, yeah. I mean, there, there is just no substitute for being in the room. Hmm. And this is okay. And we kind of got used to it. Yeah. I think we've probably all got better at it. Um, and it's definitely better than nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is just no substitute for being in the room. Now, I've reflected on something that a, a friend said to me a, a couple of years back. He said to me, yeah, human beings are born connected. I mean, literally, umbilically, <laughs> physically connected. That's how we're designed and made. That's how we're supposed to be. We are social, relational creatures, beings. Um, we're supposed to be together. And mm. um, I can't wait for that to be so again. Yeah, it feels like we're getting closer. Um, can I change gears a little bit? I wanted to talk about, I mean, you, you, you also spend, as well as, writing you spend time in the media talking about policing some of the challenges you know some of the successes as well um clearly the last year has been you know there's been you know a number of things of course there's what's happening in northern ireland at the moment but there's Mm -hmm. um you know the protests around black lives matter around uh sarah everard when you look at those things, the way they're being reported, you know, when you're asked to go and talk about them, where do you think some of the, the criticism is right? And wh- where do you think, having been part of this for 25 years, you say, particularly when it comes to the Met, do, do you think it's unfair? Well, I certainly approach all of it with a very heavy heart. Mm. Um, but the first thing to say, and, and, and the really important thing to say, is I'm not a blind apologist for the job I used to do. So I, I, I'm not one of those who thinks and believes that policing can do no wrong. Right. Mm. Um, in fact, policing, both individual officers and collectively the service, can sometimes get things terribly wrong. Um, and the consequences when that happens can be utterly devastating. And I, I believe that as a society, we have every right to expect higher standards of police officers than we do of anyone else. Mm. No exceptions. And it's for three really simple reasons. All all begin with the letter P, hopefully. (laughs) Um, One, because of the promises that we all made. When I became a police officer, I took an oath Mm. to serve without fear or favour. You know, they were the second most important set of promises I've made in my whole life. but not just the promises, secondly, the powers that we're given mm-hmm. as police officers. Um, when you stop to think about them, they're extraordinary. Powers to stop you, powers to search you, powers to enter your home, yeah. powers to take away your liberty, powers provided I can justify it to use force in order to do any of those things. And of course, those things are open to misuse and abuse. Um, and we as a society, have got to safeguard against that possibility. Mm. So the promises we made, the powers that we were given, and thirdly, the position that policing occupies in society. Mm. You know, because if you can't trust a police officer, then who can you trust? And so when I consider the life and the murder and the legacy of George Floyd mm. and all that followed it, you know, I do so really soberly. Um, I think there are enormous issues here for policing. But I also think there are enormous issues here for society as a whole. Yeah. 
because absolutely it is true that black people are disproportionately more likely to be stopped and searched by the police. But it's also true that black people are disproportionately more likely to be born into poor households, into poor neighbourhoods. They're disproportionately more likely to be excluded from school, to be unemployed, to suffer with mental ill health. Hmm. To bring it right up to date, they're disproportionately more likely to die of COVID. So policing should be first in line to face up to these challenges. But if we think it's just about policing, we're kidding ourselves. Yeah. Similarly, you know, there are elements of the Sarah Everard case that we can't talk about because there's a trial pending. But, but the problem of male violence and misogyny in mm. society, absolutely policing should be first in line to respond to those things. There is no greater duty or privilege for a police officer than to save the life of another human being. Yeah. And no greater sorrow when we fail to do that. Mm. But again, if we limit the problem of male violence to something that the police alone are responsible for dealing with, um, we're completely missing the point. Yeah. Uh, and so much of what I do in my writing, in my speaking, when I do bits and pieces in the media, it is number one, to face up to the faults and failings of policing, but number two, to try to encourage people to look more widely um, at the underlying causes of whether it's male violence or racism or whatever it might be that we're concerned about. Hmm. Um, because it's only when we properly understand the causes that we're going to stand any chance of finding the solutions. Yeah. And just the last thing I'd say is having tried to do those things, I just try to find a bit more balance in the story being told about policing. Yeah. Um, because the prevailing narrative is enormously hostile. Hmm. You know, if you listen to some politicians, some journalists, some armchair critics, the only story being told is that the police are racist, the yeah. police are yeah, yeah. incompetent, the police are corrupt. Well, do you know what? Sometimes they are, mm. and sometimes they can be, and we should never shy away from holding policing up to the light. But that's not the whole story. Yeah. It's not even half the story. And for every negative tale you could tell me, and I would defend your right, even your responsibility to do so. I could tell you a hundred tales yeah. of the kind of humanity and heroism that would take your breath away. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd love your view thinking about particularly the, the, the protest and the vigil rather around Sarah Everard and on Clapham Comic. Clearly the situation we're in at the moment where, you know, police are being asked to stop people mixing at that time. We're in a, global pandemic and they're, they're, they're doing their job but here was a, a scenario that was extremely emotive people were seeing on television screen not being uh you know they're they're peacefully paying respects it's such a difficult balance that isn't it and and of course then you pick up a newspaper and what do you see uh what it what looks like police strong arming women to the floor i mean it's it, it's that narrative you talked about but I'd, I'd love to get your view john on you know these are just people doing their jobs, right? Um, very hard for them to then say, well, no, I think I'm going to do the job differently or, or it's not open to interpretation. They're just 
doing what they're asked to do. Um, what, what was your take on it as you saw that stuff? Yeah, well, well t- talking about the vigil on Captain Common particularly, I mean, the first thing to say is the photos just look awful. I mean, they look terrible. Yeah. And there's no point trying to pretend otherwise or trying to dress it up as anything other. Um, you know, that was a pretty bleak moment for policing. But I live pretty close to Clapham Common. Um, I've got three daughters. And earlier that same day, I walked up there with my eldest daughter. And we stopped and we bought flowers and we went to the bandstand. And we laid the flowers and we paid our respects. And it was heartbreaking and haunting. But it was beautiful too. And there was something very quiet and something very respectful uh, something rather extraordinary about the place. I wasn't there later in the evening, um, and so I don't know exactly what happened, but clearly something changed, resulting in the photos that we all saw. Hmm. And, you know, if the police officers involved had their time over again, I, I mean, I'm sure they would have wanted to do it differently. Yeah. They certainly would have wanted it to end differently. Mm-hmm. But your point's absolutely right. They were placed in a completely impossible position, mm. which they have been repeatedly throughout the COVID pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, police officers will tell you over the last 18 months, they've at almost every turn found themselves damned either way. Um, you know, when it comes to sort of the policing of the pandemic in general, you have on the one hand, those who say that the police are being far too draconian in their enforcement of the the regulations and the legislation. On the other hand, a group of people looking at exactly the same set of circumstances, saying that the police aren't being nearly robust enough. And you've got girls and boys in blue standing in the middle saying, well, what do you want us to do? Um, You know, there was a very powerful example along exactly the same lines um, early last summer, you know, in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder, uh, where protests sprung up around the country. Uh, And in London, um, where the overwhelming majority of the Black Lives Matter protesters were peaceful, um, a small minority um, decided to take matters into their own hands and attack the police. People claiming anti-racism as their cause, attack the police. Now, you might remember that the following weekend, there was a counter-demonstration involving elements of the far right. Yeah. Where, on exactly the same stretches of road and pavement, police officers came under attack from actual racists. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's been so much of the refrain in in the last year or so. Um, police officers being attacked from all sides. Police officers being blamed on the one hand for the existence of a problem. Yeah, yeah. Whilst on the other hand being expected to fix it. Um, all the while, people yelling at them from every side. You know, there was some very powerful, uncomfortable accounts that came from the Clapham Common vigil of 
female police officers, you had female members of the public literally screaming in their faces, wishing them to be raped and murdered. And that does leave me wondering Mm. what kind of a society we're becoming. You know, if you claim to have attended Clapham Common to support the cause or, or to protest about the undoubted realities of violence against women, to do so by wishing violence on a woman seems to me to be a very strange way of going about things. Yeah, I I totally agree. And and what do you think is the impact of, you know, people like you were once when when you wanted to go into the police, you know, people read about this, they, they absorb it, whatever narrative you look at, is a career in the police force in the Met still something that you know young people come into and you know genuinely want to have that sense of duty genuinely as you did want to you know ultimately help save lives help people when they're having their worst day I think is how you described it with the negotiation do you think any of that's having an impact on on getting young people and recruitment into the police I'm sure it is. It's undoubtedly having an impact on people in the police. Mm. You know, serving officers at the moment are feeling really battered and bruised. No doubt. Mm. I mean, quite literally in many cases, um, but certainly metaphorically. I, these are the most challenging times for policing in this country since the end of the Second World War. Mm. You know, even before Sir Everard and even before George Floyd, even before COVID, these were immensely challenging times. You know, crime has been rising and demand on policing has been rising and the level of complexity involved in the job has yeah. been rising. Yeah. Whilst at the same time, I mean, between 2010 and 2018, the government cut 44,000 officers and staff from policing in England and Wales alone. Wow. And so we've ended up in a situation where we have fewer people with fewer resources, doing a job that's more difficult, more demanding, and frequently more dangerous than it's ever been before. Yeah. But I still think that it's the best job in the world. I still think that it's the finest thing that any of us could ever choose to do with our working lives. And maybe the best way to illustrate the fact is is to say that, that if any of my three daughters came up to me at some point in the future Mm. um, and said to me, Dad, I'm thinking about joining the police. What do you think? I throw my arms wide open and tell them that there's nothing better that they could do with their life. See, this is what this is what you did to me a couple of weeks ago when you talked to part of leadership season. You do it again now. Your optimism is just this infectious thing, John. It's brilliant. I mean, these are really like tough things to talk about. I love your eternal optimism. You are such a glass half full person. <laughs> well, it's, I, I mean, that, that's what I am naturally. I, yeah. You know, I've, on my Twitter profile, I describe myself as, as a believer in hope. Um, but there are definitely times where it requires an element of stubbornness. Um, it, you know, it, it, it's, I, I have found my hope challenged mm. repeatedly. Um, well, over the course of my life, but certainly over the course of the last 18 months. Yeah. But there's a, there's a wonderful line 
in the Old Testament of all places, um, talking about Abraham when in his late 90s or whatever, um, he's told by an angel that he's going to become a dad for the first time in circumstances where it's apparently impossible. And the line about Abraham, it says that against hope, he believed in hope. Mm. Um, yeah, in spite of all evidence to the contrary, uh, I try to hang on to my hope. Yeah. Um, can I finish on a couple of uh, a couple of lighter, maybe sort of quick fire things? Um, Go for it. Every Sunday night, the UK as a as a populace, we're captivated by line of duty how much of it do you recognize as as accurate and the force that you were part of for 25 odd years do you watch it at all um no (laughs) i I mean so for years and years i didn't watch it at all Uh, and i got to the point um sort of three or four months ago of of feeling that i was clearly missing out on the sort of the cultural zeitgeist Uh, and so my wife and i made a point of sitting down and starting with season one. Right. And we thought, we've got to give this a go. Um, and for the first time in my life, I turned into that bloke who was actually <laughs> shouting at the TV screen. Um, uh, so I'm afraid, I'm sorry. I do feel like I'm missing out, but it's just not for me. Um, and it certainly bears almost no resemblance to the reality. But very good. Um, have you ever been in trouble with the police? Uh, before I joined the police, once I, I um, uh, one of the one of the first lines early in my first book uh, reads, "I was never going to make it as a shoplifter." <laughs> um, uh, I remember, aged about, I must have been thirteen or fourteen, uh, lived in Basingstoke. I remember going into the newsagent at the top of town, and. Nicking a packet of scampy flavoured fries. Oh, I do like a scampy fries. Those, those are what my dad used to order in the pub. <laughs> and I remember pocketing them, exiting the store, and I was about to attempt my getaway on my mum's bicycle, which was and remains the worst getaway vehicle of all time, <laughs> when I felt a hand on my shoulder. And it was, I tell you what, it was right up there with the most terrifying moments of my life. And it was some interfering member of the public. It wasn't even a member of staff, but who'd spotted me in in the commission of the crime. And he frog-marched me back into the, stop, into the shop um, and presented me to the shopkeeper. And I remember just handing back this packet of scampy-flavoured fries <laughs> and, and sort of being a stuttering stammering version of myself thinking I was about to be arrested and carted off to jail and I just I, I said I, I promise I will never do it again and actually I, I meant it with all of my heart and my soul and unfortunately I mean the shopkeeper just looked at me and shrugged and kind of clearly sick of the size of me um, and sent me on my way but I, but I, gosh it you know it taught me a powerful lesson I, mm. I genuinely never did it again no um and then the, the last thing for you you said you also say in the book that uh it was the only job application that you filled out when you were at university uh, and i uh, and i wonder what you might have done if you hadn't been uh, a, a police officer 
you make a fantastic salesman. I mean, sales is all about listening to people. You know, maybe not enough good salespeople <laughs> listen to people. Any idea of what you might have done? Do you think you would have gone into writing and things like that? Well, so uh, you know, as I said to you earlier on, the writing journey has been an accidental one, mm. but but absolutely one I now love. I mean, back at the very beginning, I I sincerely didn't have a plan B. Really, it's all I wanted to do. Mm. The, the only thing. I might somehow have considered somewhere in the margins. I mean, I laugh at people about, you know, in my kind of late teens, early 20s, I had this unfulfilled hankering to be a pop star. Um, actually, more realistically, I'd, I worked behind the scenes for a band, um, not one that ever hit the big time, but but one that did okay. I mean, we played the Reading Festival. And That's good. They were played on mm. Radio 1 and, and that sort of thing. So they nearly made it, and I... I loved that. Hmm. I loved being on the road. Um, I loved being backstage. I loved turning up early for the sound checks and watching the crowds gather outside the venues. So maybe I could have ended up doing something in the music industry. But that was never the real dream. The real dream was to be a boy in blue. Hmm. Uh, John, thank you so much for giving us some time. I mean, it was it was utterly compelling when you talked to us uh, a couple of weeks ago and i'm so glad we got to have this conversation as well you've been really really kind with your time and as i say i feel very much more optimistic about the world from talking to you we sort of need this injection of john sutherland maybe sort of once a month <laughs> to sort of go out and feel very optimistic but thank you for giving us some time it's brilliant and all the best with uh, with the new book we're going to link to it in the show notes as well so people can uh, so people can find it thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure thanks john the IAB UK podcast. John Sutherland there. I hope it came through in the conversation, but despite being three years retired from the Met, you still detect this overwhelming sense of duty and pride for, as John puts it, the boys and girls in blue. And he is just this eternal optimist and believer in hope, which is quite something given the things he's witnessed over the years, the individuals he's dealt with, the situations he's probably been faced with, I certainly came away feeling like I want to try and be a better listener from now on and maybe that sometimes we take for granted this force of thousands of people who turn up every day to do their job, not knowing what they're going to encounter just to keep us safe in times like we've never experienced before. I know this was a very different episode to anything we've put out before, but John was just too good not to follow up with, and I was so pleased when he agreed to sit down and record something. If this episode has left you wanting more, I highly, highly recommend his first book, Blue, a memoir. Uh, And he's excellent on Twitter too, as at police commander, all one word. I very unwittingly oversold his new book, The Heist, which isn't out for another year. Uh, but Blue is definitely worth a read and his second book, Crossing the Line, I think comes out in paperback in the next few weeks too. And if you're not already signed up to this year's leadership series and you'd like to be involved in the upcoming town halls and roundtables, as well as hear from two more incredible speakers we're going to announce very, very shortly, then email rachel at iabuk.com. We're back next week with something a bit more familiar. But until then, thanks very much for listening. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.